You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Katherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Hey guys, it's Kat and Stefania. You're listening to This Life Explains It All, Vera's podcast. Today, we have a very thought-provoking conversation with Laura Bryden, a naturopathic doctor, women's health activist, and the author of the best-selling book, Period Repair Manual. Her book is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods and provides practical solutions using nutrition, supplements, and natural hormones. Lara has helped thousands of women find relief for period and fertility issues like PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, and perimenopause. She has a strong science background and more than 20 years of experience working with patients. We scratched the surface in this conversation because there is so much to dig into. We learned a lot and we know that anyone listening will get a lot out of this conversation. Kat, you originally found Lara and were raving about her. Yeah, I discovered her on a podcast that I listened to and it was at a point when I was starting to get a lot more curious about my cycles. They've always been really long. Like, is this normal? Yeah, 40 plus days sometimes. I was like, is this normal? And I heard her just on a podcast at the right time and she was talking about, and we'll get into this in the episode, but she was just talking about what birth control can do to your cycles later on in life. And it was really interesting and eye-opening actually, and almost like angering to me because I was on it for so long. So it was just a, you know, a really good time for me to hear that episode. And from that point on, I started, I read her book and then I started to make some lifestyle changes because I wanted to resolve these things naturally also for fertility reasons, because that is something that I want one day. (laughs) And I want to be able to be set up optimally for that. So, you know, that's when it it was really like, okay, I want to look into this and I want to figure out what's going on. So I made different changes to my diet. I've talked about on the podcast before changes to my exercise routine to try and regulate it. But yeah, I really wanted to get her on the podcast so we could dig into all of this stuff more. Yeah. And we cover so much in this conversation. One of my favorite things that we talked about or one of my favorite pieces of the conversation, I think it's around approximately 18 minutes into the interview itself. She takes us through how hormonal changes that are happening throughout our cycle. So throughout the whole month can manifest in how you might be feeling mentally and emotionally. And she breaks it down by day and week. So I think that, you know, we all either have experienced ourselves or know someone whose mood and emotional state, mental state can change, even if it's in a small way throughout the month or maybe feel more melancholy at certain times, more anxious at certain times. And she takes us through exactly what's happening and what we can do. And I found that really, really interesting among a lot of the other things that she talked about. Overall, it felt like a lot of the information she shared, her guidance and her perspective is rooted in this idea that the body can heal itself, soothe itself, regulate itself when it is properly supported. And there's a through line of that in this conversation. So on that note of the body's ability to heal, soothe and regulate itself with the right support, I wanted to share something else that I did this past week that's related to that. 
on the topic of EMFs. So we talked about this in our episode with Andy Matt, the founder of Blue Blocks and Light Health and all of these things. But EMFs, if you're not familiar, are electromagnetic frequencies. They come from any wireless device, from computers, from power lines, from electronic sources, to name a few. And these are the frequencies that come off and that can affect our health. It can affect us by causing things like neurological disorders, stress, anxiety, even cancers. So we definitely want to be careful. And I encourage everyone to do a quick Google search on that. And if you have the ability to look into EMFs in your space, but I had a specialist come to my space and do an assessment of EMFs. There's a power line nearby that passes through the bedroom or passes by the bedroom window. And it just was kind of giving me a weird feeling and making me feel a little bit like I need to get this checked out. So I followed my instinct and I had him come and he did a full assessment and was incredibly helpful in helping me understand how healthy this space is to live in and some of the things that need to change or that I could do. I thought that I would share a few of the things that the specialist shared that everyone can do if we want to reduce the levels of electromagnetic frequencies that we are exposing our bodies to and potentially putting our health at risk. So I have three top easy tips from him. Do you want to hear them? Yes, (laughs) I do. I'm ready. Number one, unplug your Wi-Fi when you go to bed at night. You're not using your Wi-Fi when you're sleeping and the waves from the Wi-Fi can impact us neurologically uh, and impact our health as well as our pets. And so think about that. That was a big kind of motivator for me to do this assessment as well. So have you been unplugging your Wi-Fi at night? Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy. And then you just plug it in in the morning. Why not do it? I don't know why I'm getting stressed out about this. (laughs) Yeah. So just just unplug your Wi-Fi at night. It will significantly reduce your exposure and you may notice that you're sleeping better. So some people are more sensitive to it than others, especially Mm -hmm. if you're someone who's sensitive um, or if you have any other kind of autoimmune stuff that sometimes can make you more sensitive to EMF. So try it and see yeah. you know, over the course of a week or two. Because I've was, i been having some trouble sleeping lately, so I might try that and see if it makes an impact. Yeah, try it. Give it a few days. But especially if you're sensitive to it, it can really have an impact on your sleep. The next is you always want any plugged in sources of power, anything that's plugged in like a light, a charger, anything like that at least six feet away from you when you're sleeping and ideally when you're not sleeping as well. So my computer cord passes right next to me as I'm working and he's advised that I plug it in on the other side. You never want any wires going right next to you because they are emitting frequencies. And so when you're sleeping, it's really bad if you have like your phone plugged in right next to you and then you have the phone nearby or even other things like a light plugged in can even do it. So Try to unplug anything that's within six feet of you when you're sleeping. And as well as when you're working, if you can have anything plugged in, be outside of your immediate area, that's going to uh, protect you as well. And then the last thing that is an easy thing everyone can do is when you have a larger electronics like computers or anything that uses more power, you always want to use the plug that has three prongs. So you know when the plug has, or you can get an adapter for it, the bottom like big prong and I'm talking about the American outlets. Are the Australian outlets the same as the US? They're slightly different, but a lot of them have the three prong. Okay. So I'm very happy about that. Yeah, that's good. So use the three prong because that grounds the energy. So the electricity. So if you use the three prong, the electricity is grounded and it won't come back up out of the wire. So there are many, many, many more things that you can do, but those are three that everyone can do. And I think goes back to also managing our circadian rhythm, not looking at the light when the blue light, when we're not meant to, and this kind of all aligns with that and supports that. So it was a very enlightening visit. I would encourage anyone who has access to to it, to do it. And you might want to start out with those three tips that he gave. Yeah, that's very easy. I mean, we can all do those things very easily. And it sounds like he was at your place for a long time too, like doing a very thorough check. Oh my God. He was here for so long. Well, he was like geeking out over all of the EMF information after a while. I'm like, okay, I got it. (laughs) Um, But he did spend, you know, a couple hours checking everything. Amazing. 
I'll actually, if anyone's in Los Angeles or San Francisco, I have two great EMF specialists and we'll put them in the show notes if anyone is interested in having a consult in their home, if you're in the Bay Area or if you are in the Los Angeles area. All right. Well, shall we get into the conversation with Laura? Yes. Let's get into this conversation. Like we said, we cover a lot. So you're going to learn a lot. We talk about why so many women in our modern world are having issues with their cycles, how period health is a reflection of our overall health and our gut health is a big part of that too. We talk about what you may not know about the damage that birth control can do to fertility later on in life. So we talk about common diagnoses like PCOS, endometriosis, PMDD, and what they are actually telling us. We talk about fertility issues and how to work on resolving them naturally. The surprising misconception about fertility and how 50% is actually a male issue and not only the female. Uh, This part of the conversation was mind-blowing because I think we don't think about that. Yeah. And we talk about Lara's take on fertility treatments like IVF, egg freezing, and so much more. Let's get into it. Welcome, Laura. We're so excited to have you on This Life Explains It All podcast. We really want to dig in today about everything related to periods and period health, birth control, fertility. So we're really excited. This is a topic that we're personally very invested in and interested in. So welcome again. So we'd love to start out by why people are having so many issues with their periods and what's behind it, what's causing it. Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. Yeah, a big starting question. (laughs) As to, you know, perhaps why more than previous generations? Would you maybe say that? Yeah. Yeah. I think at least some of it is due to hormonal birth control and Mm -hmm. being put on hormonal birth control at quite a young age for a lot of women and then trying to transition off. I'll just share something about the menstrual cycle that I think is quite important and I'd like to see more discussion of, that it takes time to mature a healthy menstrual cycle. It doesn't just like switch on, everything's fine. Like there's a maturation process from when we are, when we first get our period at say 13 years old, as long as we're allowed to have natural menstrual cycles at that age and not have them suppressed by the pill, then the normal process is it takes about 12 years to mature the menstrual cycle from age 13 to 25. So if that's allowed to proceed, then you start having ovulations that are more robust, which means you're making more progesterone. So the cycle becomes more regular. You're making more progesterone. So the periods are lighter. You can see I'm coming back a lot to ovulation and progesterone because they're so central to a healthy Mm -hmm. menstrual cycle. And progesterone also has the beneficial effect of being quite good for metabolism and pushing down on androgens or male hormones. So a lot of young women out there, women, not just young women, have suffer with something called PCOS, which is on the rise with there's different reasons for that. But I think possibly part of that is hormonal birth control used at a very young age. So I hope that gives a beginning of where the problem's coming from. I'm happy to dig down into any of that. Yeah, there's so mm-hmm. much that we want to dig in to with okay. you, but yeah, it's a, it's great to kind of set the stage with yeah. helping us understand some of these things at a high level. One yeah. of the other pieces that I think is great in as we think about framing this conversation as we get started, I know you talk in your book about how we can look at our cycle and our menstruation as a reflection of our overall health. Yes. So if someone is thinking about how can I learn from my cycle about my overall health, how could they start to think about that? Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I call the our period our monthly report card. Mm. So it gives us clues. It's a reflection or a manifestation of health. So in my book, Period Repair Manual, I set the stage by describing what a normal period is, which I might just do with you briefly now. And yeah. then, you know, any deviations from that are clues as to what might be going on. So healthy menstrual cycles should begin, like the first day of flow should come every, anywhere between 21 to 35 days, up to 45 days if you're a teenager. 
somewhat regularly. It doesn't have to be spot on. It doesn't have to be 28 days. It doesn't have to be like exactly to the day. That's a totally unrealistic expectation. It's going to vary a little bit. And then it shouldn't be more than seven days of flow. You shouldn't lose more than about 80 milliliters of menstrual fluid, which is really just about four tablespoons, mm. five to four to six tablespoons. You, and it shouldn't be painful and it shouldn't be difficult or distressing in any way. I mean, you can, you can notice some subtle ups and downs with, with the hormones, especially with the premenstrual phase, but it shouldn't be debilitating or mm. interfere with your life. So that's the expectation. I tend to, you know, I've been trying to increase, raise the bar of expectation of what it means to have a healthy period. Mm-hmm. So that women know if there's some part of that that's not working for them, then there's something that needs to be addressed. And sometimes it's something simple, like a reflection of a nutrient deficiency or not eating enough, or sometimes it's, it's more, sometimes it's more a sign of something called insulin resistance or prediabetes, which is actually really common. Can be period problems can be a sign of a thyroid problem. Thyroid is our, this gland here that is very important for health. So yeah, it's a big picture kind of zoomed out look at what, what the period is trying to tell you about your health. I want to ask one follow-up, maybe a little bit selfishly, because, you know, when you said that it's not supposed to be painful, it's not supposed to be debilitating. Of course, I'm thinking about myself and my experience. And for as long as I can remember, my periods have been debilitatingly painful and I'm very healthy in other ways. Like I'm not overweight. I've done a lot of work to get my gut health in check. For example, I watch alcohol and caffeine, all of these things, but I'm really in excruciating pain every month. And I don't think I'm the only one. And I wonder, and I know that it's very specific to the person and their diagnostics and all of these things, but what would you say to someone like me to maybe really dig into if that is their experience? Okay. So I have a blog post called, is it normal period pain or endometriosis? Hmm. So just in your, I mean, because we're discussing your situation, had someone said endometriosis to you? Was that ever? No. It was never never brought up? Never brought up. Okay. Well, endometriosis is common. It affects about up to probably more actually. It's at least one in 10 women, possibly mm-hmm. more. And it's classically a misdiagnosis. It's, it's, I think of all the diseases ever in history, endometriosis is going to go down as the one that was just tragically, consistently not diagnosed, mm-hmm. which is a lot of the endometriosis awareness campaigns are kind of focusing on that. And actually a lot of the campaigns start with the statement, debilitating period pain is never normal. Mm. So it's an inflammatory disease of the pelvis. It's actually very often in my discussions about period pain, it's endometriosis gets its own room. You know, it's in terms of the period being a monthly report card, endometriosis is kind of an exception to that because it's a specific disease that of which period pain is one of the symptoms. So you know, I, I guess um, in terms of whether you have that or not, you'd, obviously you'd have to speak to specialists. There, there's no, the interesting thing about endometriosis, an, ultra, an ultrasound cannot rule it out. Hmm. There's no easy way to actually rule it out. And you might've had, you know, some women have doctor after doctor tell them there's nothing wrong. You know, the ultrasound, the blood test, it's all fine. There's nothing wrong. And still the disease is there. So I speak about endometriosis quite a lot in chapter nine of my book. And I've been involved. I'm involved with an activism organization for it down here in New Zealand. I think my approach with patients is I put in place all the things that should work for period pain, normal period pain, including, for example, you know, no cow's dairy and take and maybe supplement zinc and some pretty basic things. And then if the pain doesn't improve, to me, that's evidence there's something going on, mm-hmm. usually endometriosis. Yeah. So for me, that's part of the diagnostic procedure. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you've, if, as you say, if you're healthy, you've done everything, your diet's good, you know, you've tried all the obvious things and the pain doesn't shift, then there's something else going on. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to look into the zinc thing as well. Okay. It's good to bring it up near the beginning of the podcast. You're, you're not alone. Cause of course, yeah. as soon as I start saying things like, you know, the period shouldn't be painful. The period is a report card. Straight away, all the one in 10 women who have endometriosis are kind of going, well, that doesn't sound right. Like that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm a healthy person and I have this pain. So that's why I I actually, I actually think endometriosis is a little bit separate because it's not just kind of bad periods. You know, it's it's a condition, like it's a, a disease that needs separate attention. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, on the topic of gut health, how is that connected to all of this? I remember in your book, you mentioned that client example that had psoriasis and irregular periods, and then it ended up that she actually had a gluten intolerance. So do you see that a lot, that the gut health and all these issues are linked? Definitely the gut affects periods because the gut affects everything, right? Yeah. The gut really affects endometriosis, just to loop back to that for a second. That's kind of a, you know, again, sort of a separate topic, but in terms of period problems that aren't endometriosis, the gut has an effect. The fact that gluten can cause period irregularity is very real, but it's not super common. Like I'd say the majority of women don't have a gluten problem. So, you know, I don't have a gluten problem. I'd say, you know, probably 80, 90% of my patients don't have a gluten problem. But for those who do, it, gluten can have a huge impact on periods and typically makes them kind of disappear or become less regularly, although it can manifest in different ways. So, yeah, so it's in the book I talk about putting on your detective hat, you know, trying to, I try to give a list of like, if you have a symptom, like irregular periods, that's a clue. And it could mean one of several things of which gluten is just one. We could talk about irregular periods as kind of a, like a case study of, yeah, what that could mean. Yeah, that would be great. Just before you go, and I have really irregular periods. They're like 35 plus days, sometimes in the 40s. So I was diagnosed with PCOS based off the ultrasound and the irregular periods. All of my hormone levels were fine. It was just that those two things kind of made me a candidate for that. So I'd be curious to hear about that as well as it relates to irregular periods. Yeah. Let's, okay, let's talk about irregular periods. This is good. We're kind of talking about a few common problems. We talked about pain. Yeah. Now we're talking about irregular <laughs> periods. Right it. Yeah, it's good because this is, this is what your listeners, these are the kinds of problems they have for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Irregular periods is an interesting one. So the very first question to ask, and I talk about this in the book, and this is what I do with my patients. Okay, so you've got a 40, let's say you or like a person, you know, has a, a woman has a 40 something day cycle. The very first question to ask is, are you ovulating with those cycles? Like, do you know that you are? Mm-hmm. Which you can confirm quite easily with temperature tracking, right? Just to, if you had that, that rise in resting body temperature during the final two weeks before the bleed, that's a a sign that, that, well, that means that you've ha- you're having ovulatory cycles where ovulation is occurring, in which case that's really, really good. Like a 40 day ovulatory cycle is not a disaster. Like it's, it's okay. Like ideally it would be nice to have it a little bit closer in, mm-hmm. but in terms of, you know, your body's doing what it needs to do. Sometimes the longer, so if you have a 40 day cycle, but you're ovulating, then you have a, as always, of course, a two-week luteal phase, which is the phase after ovulation. Yeah, so it's called the luteal mm-hmm. phase. It's, it's locked in. It's two weeks, usually, give or take. It can be a bit less. It's almost never more than about two weeks. So all of the variation in the cycle length is coming before ovulation. So with a 40-day cycle, <laughs> do the maths here, you know, you've got like a 28-day, or I'm not quite doing it here, but like you've, you've got like a longer, almost a month-long follicular phase or phase leading up to the ovulation. So that longer follicular phase can be from, just to give you some example, from being young. I mean, I don't think you're super young, like, but if it's literally if you're like early twenties, that's not unusual. It can be from a vegetarian diet, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I gave a case study about that. It's just tends to have lower levels of estrogen, which is okay. Although I'm not a fan of a vegan diet, but we can just to clarify that, but I mean, typically a vegetarian diet would have a longer follicular phase. Tendency to undereating can have a longer, longer follicular phase. PCOS can have a longer follicular phase. You mentioned that. Or the other thing that can happen with PCOS is like no ovulation, like just mm-hmm. long cycles that aren't even cycles that are just like a bleed now and then because there's no ovulation. And typically with PCOS, one of the classic features of that is then when the bleed does come, it would be for longer like it wouldn't just be the five to seven days or the two to seven days. It would be mm. a bleed with PCOS could be like 10 days or two weeks. Or And what's happening there is there was no ovulation. So there's no progesterone to control, like control the bleeding, to mature the lining of the uterus and mm-hmm. control what happens. Yeah. So working through those possibilities... Mm-hmm. requires just a few extra questions then, right? Like what I would ask with my patients, trying to figure out, is it 
just differentiating between, for example, under eating and PCOS is actually one of the things I do almost daily with my patients because there's a lot of confusion between those two situations. They can look quite similar in that they can both present with longer irregular cycles or no cycles. Under eating can progress to like no cycles at all. They can both have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, which means absolutely nothing. I'll just say that polycystic finding on ultrasound means nothing, essentially. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't shouldn't factor into the diagnosis. But usually differentiating between those two things, under eating, which is called hypothalamic amenorrhea, and PCOS. The main thing is PCOS usually has, well, not usually, by definition has androgens of some kind, like male hormone, evidence of male hormones, either on blood tests or facial hair or, you know, quite severe, you know, moderately severe jawline acne or something going on, right? Like some sign of male mm-hmm. hormones. And mm-hmm. if there's no male hormones, it's by definition, not PCOS. That's my position. That's, I mean, this, experts vary in terms of how they define PCOS, but the androgen excess, PCOS and androgen excess society states that according to their criteria, androgen excess has to be there or it's not PCOS. So is that, is that sort of a beginning of the conversation of irregular cycles? Does that help? Yeah. One thing that I think would be great. So the next question I was going to ask you has to do with mood and our mental state around our cycle. And I wonder also if it makes sense in the context of that to talk a little bit about what might be happening within those two phases when it comes to mood and mental health from an anecdotal perspective and hearing actually a lot of women that I've heard have said that during that luteal phase, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Tend to feel more melancholy down, maybe like a little situational depression, even in more extreme cases. I know of a woman who feels that every time during that part of the the cycle. And so I wonder if you can share a little bit about what might be going on for someone who is feeling some of that mood and mental health stuff throughout their cycle. And if it makes sense, are there things that may present in each phase differently? Yes. Our mood, just generally, our nervous system and our brain can feel it when both estrogen and progesterone go up and down through the cycle, do their thing. So there's different parts to it. So what happens is just leading up. So usually most people feel quite well just with the period and right after the period. That's when both hormones are still relatively low. Then estrogen goes up quite a lot just before in the five to six days before ovulation. That's the estrogen peak of the cycle. Some women experience that as just outright beneficial. Like I'd say the majority actually women would get almost like a euphoria from that. Estrogen stimulates serotonin, dopamine. You get this like some of the research shows that with high levels of estrogen, you can, during that pre-ovulatory phase, you can get, you just feel more outgoing. You're more wanting to leave the house, do stuff, exercise, move. It has a mild appetite suppressing effect, which is all very interesting. <laughs> so if there are going to be mood symptoms in that at that time, it's because of the way the immune system is reacting to that surge in estrogen and particularly around mast cells and histamine, something called histamine. So if some of them get almost like an, if you will, sort of an inflammatory reaction to their own estrogen, it's not estrogen's fault. It's the state of their immune system has, when it is exposed to estrogen, it gets all this, it pumps out histamine. I don't know if you've ever spoken to any of your guests about histamine intolerance or mast cells. It's histamine... Histamine causes anxiety. So we think of it for allergies, you know, it's involved in allergies, but it also causes headaches, hives, kind of rashes, anxiety. So some women get that reaction pre-ovulatory that can trigger migraines as well for some women. And then with ovulation, progesterone kicks in. That's the only time we make progesterone is during those two weeks between ovulation and the period. Progesterone usually is quite calming for the brain. It generally has a very calming effect on the brain. It's, there are exceptions to that, unfortunately, but it generally, women start to feel kind of chill, a bit more chill after ovulation, their appetite would increase. They might kind of feel like staying home a bit more and it, it, it alters mood, but in a subtle way, some women love, like certainly the women out there who are harnessing that, right? Like kind of tracking this cycle, knowing, okay, I'm in my outgoing phase. Okay. Now I'm in my like luteal phase, kind of more stay at home. And so that's, I think that's fine. Like, I think you can work with that. My, my position is those effects should be fairly subtle. Like, it's not like you can't 
you know, if you're healthy and everything's going well, you can still go out and do a presentation during your luteal phase. I mean, that's not, you might prefer to stay home, but you can still, you know, function. So then what happens more typically is at the end of the luteal phase, so progesterone is quite calming generally, but almost all of us experience some withdrawal from it. As in when it starts to drop, because we make huge amounts of progesterone. We make, just to put it in perspective, up to a hundred times more progesterone than estrogen. So it's a big deal for them in the brain. It has a huge effect on the brain. So typically when that starts to drop, you know, three or four days before the period, we might get a bit anxious. So that's, you feel that like your sleep could be affected. I think most women would get that just, just to some extent, but if you're healthy, you have an underlying resilience with your nervous system and immune system, it should be subtle. Some women, there's something called PMDD or premenstrual disorder, where it's quite different. Some women get a strong negative mood reaction immediately with ovulation. Like as soon as progesterone kicks in, they feel really quite distressed, actually. It can be quite severe in some cases. That's a little different. That's a, again, it's not an issue. It's not a problem with hormones, right? There's nothing wrong with the hormones. It's something going on in the brain, which we could go into more detail, but there's a change in the brain that creates sort of a hypersensitivity to it, to progesterone. Whereas instead of progesterone, it's paradoxical. Instead of progesterone causing, making you feel calm, it actually can make you feel quite agitated. Mm. So, and there are things you can do about that. So I'll just emphasize again, the problem is not the hormones themselves. The problem is very often chronic inflammation or a situation with the immune system and nervous system that reacts to hormones abnormally. So, so is it essentially, if you're experiencing some of this, you know, more severe mood stuff, you may also have chronic inflammation that is creating a not ideal or negative response to the hormone? Yeah. So I've written uh, quite a number of blog posts about premenstrual mood and PMDD in particular, and I've compiled them a couple of times into Instagram posts. So there's a few factors, I guess I would look at for mood. And just to say, yes, my experience with patients is if you correct some of these underlying inflammatory issues, you can correct the symptom. Mm-hmm. So again, just to, histamine plays a role in this as well. So my, often my strategy is to straight away, try to reduce the histamine mast cell response, usually by avoiding cow's dairy again. <laughs> and mm-hmm. You can look at magnesium and vitamin B6. Those are really good for stabilizing the part of the brain called the GABA receptor, which is involved in all of this. GABA is our, if you know GABA, it's actually the main calming neurotransmitter in the brain. So it's, GABA is huge. I mean, we, all, we always hear about serotonin, but serotonin is a smaller player. GABA is really important for the brain. It soothes, it calms, and progesterone interacts with GABA receptors. So it's kind of, progesterone is involved with GABA. So if the GABA system in the brain is happy and healthy, then progesterone is calming, put it that way. So you can improve the GABA system in the brain by magnesium, vitamin B6. I talk about a couple of amino acids, glycine, taurine, like there's different ways to do that. And then, you know, in my PMS posts, I, I also have a post about the role of iodine or iodine, which is actually really important for the brain and for the hormonal system and hormone sensitivity. So I end up prescribing quite a lot about that. I'll just say... Before taking any of these supplements, I would encourage you to at least, you know, read my blog post or my book where I talk about safe doses and contraindications and just, but you can do a lot with some of these supplements, which are readily available, you know, not expensive, easy things to try. Yeah. In regards to birth control. So I'm one of those people that was on birth control to regulate my cycles for years. So when I heard you first talk about birth control and how it actually just completely stops your cycle and you don't ovulate on it and it's not a real period that really opened my eyes to how many people you know that happens to and then later on like you end up having and myself included fertility issues or it takes a longer time to get pregnant so i'm just wondering if you could talk about that connection on birth control and your take on all of that so Contraceptive drugs have been in use for 60 years, I guess. You know, in some ways we think that's a long time, but it's actually not a very long time at all when you think about it. Like this is a new development for humans. And I'm personally convinced that future generations will look back on the era of contraceptive drugs as 
a weird time in medicine. Like this always happens in medicine, right? Like whatever era you're in, you think, oh, this is normal. Like, you know, hundred years ago, oh, let's give mercury to like do all these, you know, kill yeah. all these. Like, that's fine. That's normal. That's, that's at the time kind of the evidence-based medicine. And then a hundred years later, you're like, that's not good for the body. So yeah, I'm pretty confident that's where contraceptive drugs are going to be eventually. They, it's obviously such a big topic. I mean, acknowledging at the outset that certainly there are circumstances where they, you know, help with debilitating pain in the case of endometriosis, they can, although it's, I would argue it's not the best treatment for endometriosis, but and there's something that called the like the hormonal IUD can dramatically lighten flow. So I have to you know acknowledge there are times, certainly even with my patients, where I say, okay, in your particular case, this is probably the best thing for the moment. But big picture, the routine use of contraceptive drugs to put young women into essentially chemical menopause and rob them of their hormones that they need for brain health and muscles and bone and heart health and everything else is crazy. Like, so just to confirm, like there's no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control, not at all. You know, there's no, so there's no progesterone and we need progesterone for lots of things, which including healthy brain, long-term bones. The estrogen in hormonal birth control is usually a synthetic version of estrogen that's quite different from our own estradiol. So that's not ideal either. And the big problem is more like what we've talked about right at the very beginning, that by shutting down the cycle, even though you get a drug withdrawal bleed, but that means nothing, right? Like there's no reason to bleed monthly on the pill. By shutting down the cycle, the contraceptive drugs like prevent that maturation process of the menstrual cycle, which can mean, yeah, often I'll see that with patients where they then stop it in their early 30s and don't get a regular period straight away. But what I say to my patients is, why would you? Like really like big picture, why would you expect to? Like, because it, you know, the typical trajectory is when you're 13, 14, your periods are not regular, but over time they, you know, they solidify, they become more robust. That takes time. I mean, fortunately my experience is it doesn't, even though normally that takes 12 years to mature, I do find that women in their thirties can kind of fast track that. Like the body's resilient. Mm -hmm. So you, you can get with the right support, the cycle's kicking in and it's trying to establish a regular ovulation. So, I mean, that's my take. I, I guess I feel, you know, just philosophically, like it's 2020. Like why should avoiding pregnancy require complete shutdown of the female hormonal system? Like, I, you know, there's obviously better options out there, technologies that exist already actually that aren't in use yet. And also technologies that could be invented that, you know, are just, are just better ways for all of this, better ways to avoid pregnancy, and then in terms of treating period problems, obviously way better ways to treat, because the pill doesn't treat period problems. It just shuts off the period, shuts off the menstrual cycle. So the, whatever problems were there are still there and sometimes worse when you then stop the drugs. What about how birth control links to fertility? Do you see those issues coming up? For the longest time, there was sort of this insistence that you know the pill doesn't affect ovulation. Like you can stop the pill and go, you know, regain your ovulation, regain your fertility straight away. Now, my understanding is that insistence, that statement was based on some like early studies of women who, very different situation, right? Who took it, they'd already maybe had a couple babies and then they took the pill for a couple years and then they came off and they were fine. You know, that, sure. I believe that's probably the case. The very different than giving the pill to a 13 year old girl, she stays on it until she's 35 and then tries to come off it and can't ovulate because of reasons we talked about before, because she never got a chance to mature her menstrual cycle. So that's there definitely can be the situation where you, it takes a while to get ovulation going after stopping it. Potentially, it's a little bit of research about, you know, for some women, not all, but for some women who'd been on contraceptive drugs, particularly progestins for years, having changes to the uterine lining, which can be hard to reverse. So that's a topic I know a little bit less about, but mm -hmm. usually when, if patients are asking me, they're like, if they're on the pill and they say, what do you think is going to happen when I stop the pill in terms of, will I, will I get it? Will I start to ovulate? Will I start to have my cycle? Will I be fertile? Mm -hmm. One of my first questions is how many years of cycling did you have before you took it? Because that to me tells the story. So if you had at least even like a couple, but certainly three or four years of cycling under your belt before shutting it all down, then my experience is that 
bodes well. Like then the body's like, oh yes, I remember. I, I did this before. I remember what I have to do. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to dig more into the fertility piece. And I know we've been touching on so many different yeah. <laughs> aspects and and we kind of are looking in this conversation to get a little bit of all the things that we feel like are, are top yeah. of mind and then maybe deep dive in a little bit more another time. But, you know, I feel like, and, and with our audience and what, what we know about this community and even ourselves, like we're waiting, women are waiting longer in many cases to have children than they once did. And whether they are actively trying and maybe it's taking longer or just thinking, okay, do I need to be worried? I mean, can you talk a little bit about what a woman who is maybe in her early 30s or to mid 30s, what actions, if any, should she be taking to think about fertility if she's not kind of getting ready to get pregnant or try to get pregnant right now? How proactive do you think it's necessary to be? Well, very simply, now is the time. Now, don't wait. Now is the time to get your natural menstrual cycles going and see how they are and look for clues of what might not be right. Right. Like, so I think, I think in the very first chapter of my book, I say, don't wait, Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't wait. Like, even if you're thinking, Oh, it's, I'm already 35. It's like, okay, now better than, you know, just, (laughs) just get off. I mean, my feeling would be get off the pill. Yeah. See what's happening. And then if there, there are issues to be corrected, then you can get on top of that. I mean, that, that's my general feeling. The only, I guess the only exception to that, I mean, there's not really an exception, but I do just have to differentiate. Endometriosis is different, actually. It's different in the sense that um, for some women, if the hormonal IUD has been keeping the endometriosis at bay, basically slowing down the inflammation of that disease, which it doesn't always, but then you don't necessarily want to, like you, you want to be careful you don't get off hormonal birth control and then have the disease get worse because that mm-hmm. wouldn't be good for fertility either. So mm-hmm. that's sort of a little caveat. But, and the other thing with fertility I say this almost every time. I just, I'm a campaigner for male factor. 50% of the time, the problem is men. So we always think fertility is a female issue. Mm -hmm. I see at least 50%, if not more. So it's men, their sperm is in trouble, like big picture. Like, you know, we talk about all period problems happening with women. There's probably different factors for that. Some, Some of it's lifestyle, some of it's environment, I think. Same's happening for men. Like they're sperm has kind of been in free fall for a few decades, which is concerning. I mean, men are still fertile, which is good, mm-hmm. but there's things going on. And my experience is that often is very much an afterthought when it should be like for any couple planning for pregnancy, the, like for example, the man should probably be on a preconception supplement, you know, at least a hundred days before trying, because that's how long it takes to make new sperm, get everything, get his side of things optimal. What about like things like their fertility treatments, like IVF, fertility drugs? I guess if you resolve the issues naturally before, then you probably won't have to do those things. But what's your take on the those fertility-based treatments? Yeah, it's complicated. Like one thing I'll say is when IVF works, when it works, it's usually because there was a male problem. So at the moment, Ooh. at the moment, this is the this is the actual current state of things. The only conventional treatment for male fertility problems is IVF for the woman. So because they, you know why? Because they they take the like they inject the sperm right into the egg. So like they kind of bypass all the things the sperm is supposed, supposed to do to yeah. reach the finish line. They bypass all that. So wow. of course, I would argue you should maybe get a you know male fertility specialist on at some point. But like there are things you can do from a natural perspective for male fertility. But in terms of you know, what is my position on fertility treatments? I worry, like I worry, I see the toll they take on women's health and it makes me very sad. Like, I feel like women's, the actual individual woman's health sometimes gets pushed to the side in the pursuit because in the fertility clinics, the goal is a pregnancy or a baby. And the actual woman's health is not really, as far as I can tell, a lot of the times not really a consideration, which I feel makes me sad. And, and that's a generalization. And I, you know, I don't want to, not to say that individual doctors feel that way. Like, you know, I think it's lots of compassionate, good doctors out there. It's it's not that it's kind of the way the system works. Yeah. And an example would be a very more concrete example is as a bit of evidence, not a lot of research yet, unfortunately, but I've certainly seen it where those fertility injections make endometriosis worse. And 
It's no surprise because you get this huge storm of estrogen with that process. And yeah, that could flare up endometriosis. So that's, you know, that's when I see with my patients, it's like, it seems to be better if you actually achieve pregnancy and then you get the benefit of the pregnancy hormones. But if you go through a few cycles and don't achieve pregnancy, then I have these patients who their endometriosis is worse. And then it feels like they've sort of just been pushed backwards in terms of their health. So that's, I mean, that's in a nutshell, that's kind of my position. Yeah. Uh It's so surprising about the the male. I had no idea that that was, I didn't even think about the male and how IVF is potentially because the male is having issues with fertility. Wow. And that's when it works the best, which makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? Because in that situation, the woman, everything's good, right? Like her pelvic environment's good. Implantation is going to go well. She's got good quality eggs. That's all happening. And IVF just solves the male problem. And then, but like, if there's problems with the woman's side of things in terms of egg quality or inflammation in the pelvis, impairing implantation, for example, IVF can't really get around that. Like the, the other, the thing it can get around, the thing that IVF would be awesome for, and like definitely first choice would be if there's something like blocked tubes, which like, and if there's an anatomical issue where, a natural pregnancy is just never going to happen because of a tubal, then yeah. I mean, obviously then that's when IVF is, that's why it was invented really. That's, I mean, it's good for that kind of thing. So it sounds like there are, or, you know, from your standpoint, there are other things you would suggest exploring. Like, can we heal the imbalances? Can we heal what might be off in a woman's body before going to something as extreme as IVF? Or even maybe before, and maybe this is a little bit different, but I hear, you know, a lot of women now are proactively freezing their eggs and going through that process of egg harvesting. And like, is that really necessary? And all of these things. I don't know that there was a question there, but this is just like my thoughts that are coming up as you're talking about this. I mean, I'm uneasy about that process just because I'm uneasy about this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is sort of a controversial area. I'm not anti it. I think, you know, women need to do what they need to do, but I'll just say around the egg freezing side of things, there's a lot, a lot of marketing coming at women around that. Yeah. And that makes me uneasy too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And egg freezing is no guarantee either that it will eventually work out. Like there's always, there's always going to be an unknown and like, you know, fertility is always going to be one of those things that there's no guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any like top lifestyle changes that you would recommend people? I know it it will depend on the person, but you know, lifestyle things that that we can do to naturally regulate our cycles and be more fertile. The period is the monthly report card. So ovulation, fertility is a report card of the health as well. So yes. So fix your health, you know, optimize your health and you'll optimize your fertility. That's true for both men and women. And usually in terms of concrete, yeah, I mean, get enough sleep, eat, be fully nourished, you know, don't have a medical, outstanding medical condition that needs to be treated. Like don't smoke. Oh, don't smoke. I mean, I guess that's an obvious one, but like, do not smoke. That's the ovaries do not like that at all. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just general things like that. But beyond that, I always speak in terms of starting place, like in terms of what is the going to be the most effective change or intervention, it sort of depends on where you are starting from. So just to compare and contrast again with under eating versus PCOS, like, because they often get confused one for the other. So first of all, differentiate what's happening. Then if you're, for example, if a person, a woman is not ovulating because she's not eating enough, the number one, like absolutely number one thing is to dial the calories way, way up and the carbs as well up. And that can take a few months to get a result. On the other hand, if a woman has prediabetes or insulin resistance and is not ovulating because of PCOS and insulin resistance, she needs to cut sugar, like mm. particularly sugary drinks, like high, fr- high dose fructose of like fruit juice and soft drink and, you know, any sugar binging that's going on. So you can see those are kind of opposite situations, right? But that's why starting place is quite important. And if there's endometriosis, that's a you know, whole other topic as well. Well, so this podcast is called This Life Explains It All. And we always look at how our experiences are our teachers in our life. And so we always close out the podcast with this question that we would love to ask you and get your answer to. What life experience for you has been your greatest teacher? Well, I guess the thing that came to my mind was moving so far from home. I'm Canadian, but I've lived down under for a long time. Yeah. 
it's, you know, it's, I don't know what the lessons have been, just a lesson in independence, in nostalgia, <laughs> the, yeah. you know, understand, knowing where we come from, maintaining relationships, understanding what's important. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what came to mind. It's, I never thought I'd live so far from home. I never wanted to. I was always, I always thought I'd stay right close to Canada and then, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Where are you from in Canada? South of Calgary. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if somebody wants to work with you, follow you on Instagram, where can they find you? We'll link to everything in the show notes, but if you want to share it verbally here. I am easy to find. So my blog is larabryden.com. All of my social media is at larabryden. So I guess the only three I'm on are Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And my book is Period Repair Manual. Amazing. We will link all of those. You know, I wanted to ask you one thing and maybe you have a link or resource for it. Um, and if it's going to be too long to get into, yeah. we'll skip it. But yeah. if someone wants to work with a practitioner that is going to dig into all the things that we talked about, you know, look at things through the lens of, of you know, what we've been covering this conversation and really like that whole uh, viewpoint, are there things that you would recommend that they look for in a practitioner that, you know, can help them understand up front whether that's going to be the kind of experience? Do you have any resources on that? Yeah. Well, the thing com- that comes to mind is in my book, there's a section on how to speak to your doctor. I mean, okay. that's more kind of for doctors, but I think just having the language, like knowing to ask, like, am I ovulating or am I having anovulatory cycles or what is the reason I'm not ovulating or do I have insulin resistance? Like those are questions you can ask. Yeah. And then I guess if you, you know, it's the right practitioner, if you get some, like if you're on the same page, basically right. if you get some com- comprehension with the answers, it's like, okay, I know what you're asking. Let's try to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Get the book people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was so informative. Lovely to meet you both. Thank you. Yes, you've given me so much to think about myself too. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.